Uh, just a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I was mowing our front yard and I felt something crawling up my leg. It didn't feel like a spider, it didn't feel like a roach, it actually felt like a snake. And so I, and the grass wasn't that tall or anything, but I just shook my leg real quick and let go of the mower and it stopped running. I looked down and sure enough, there was a lizard, but it wasn't just a normal lizard, it was a horny toad. I didn't even know there were horny toads around here, but in the first service, I asked someone about it, said, yeah, we got those in our, in our backyard, we used to have a lot of them. Uh, when we were living down in Austin, and so I hadn't seen one of those in years. But I remember as a younger person in South Texas seeing them from time to time. They eat red ants, and in South Texas we had 20 acres of property behind the house and a lot of ants, and so I would see those from time to time, and I loved the horny toad. And so when I look down, I see this little horned toad. I It takes me back, and I look. And I take a minute or two, and I'm watching this. And I regarded it, and it regarded me. We, our eyes met. And, um, I mean, it was sort of, it really, it was kind of a magical moment. And sort of like from Avatar, I see you. And the horned toad saw me. And we had a moment, about a minute or two. And then I came back to reality thinking, I've got other things to do. I need to hurry up and get this yard mowed. But the horn toad had made its way over underneath the front right tire or front right wheel of our push mower. Anyway, so don't judge me. Uh, but I pulled the mower and continued on and ran over the horn toad. And uh, But, you know, I had things to do. Anyways, actually, no, I just made that part up. I... T- Look, I just told you, don't judge me. And you did. You know, you, you, know, you know why you just judged me? Here's why. Because when you see something and then you act as if it's not there, especially after you've regarded it, that just seems sort of monstrous, right? I mean, people mow over stuff accidentally all the time. But to see and then to disregard, that just... That just seems wrong, even if it's just a lizard. It just seems wrong, doesn't it? Now, here's my question. The God who sees you and sees everyone else around, do you think that this God is so monstrous that he just sort of mows over humanity because he's got things to do? Well, of course not. In the Bible, to see, especially when God sees, it is to regard. When God sees It's because he cares, and God never disregards anything that he sees, because when it comes to God, people matter. They matter immensely to him. We're going to talk about how people matter today, and the reason we're talking about this is because we're in the middle of this series, uh, The Dream at 10th and Main, and uh, that's where the buildings are located, but we know that the church is more than a building, it's the people, but we're talking about who we are, that who God has made us to be. And last week we talked about our identity. We're a, a family of priests revealing Christ. And as priests under the great high priesthood of Jesus Christ, we do stand at the intersection between heaven and earth, like the, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are, we are priests under his great high priesthood. And so what we do is we represent people, represent God to people, and then we bring uh, people to God. We stand at this intersection. And so at the heart of being an effective priest is is our heart. It's having a heart that matches his heart, that reflects his character and his nature and his love. 
So it's very important for us as a family of priests who want to reveal Christ to have our hearts aligned with his, to have our church body aligned with him. And so we have these core values. There are three core values, and they serve as sort of solid markers, so to speak, so that we can know if we're off course or not, so we can know if we need to calibrate and how much we need to calibrate our lives. And these three solid core values that are immovable are people matter, kingdom growth, and service. These have been core values for the church for a long, long time, and they will continue to be core values because they help us in this exercise of alignment. Now, in the Bible, there's this word for this exercise of alignment that you've probably heard before, but you never thought it was this exercise of alignment. And here's the word. The word the Bible uses for this exercise of alignment is repentance. It's actually a real positive word. You've probably heard about repentance before, about how you're going in one direction and you turn around and move in another direction. But in the Bible, in the grander scope of things, repentance simply means a personal, wholehearted, absolute, unconditional surrender to the sovereign God who is king. That's just what is largely being communicated in terms of repentance. Surrender. Yielding. And so it's entirely appropriate that when Jesus came and he started his public ministry, the Bible tells us that he began to preach Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, when the king comes and he brings with him his kingdom, the only appropriate response to the God who is sovereign is to kneel, is to align. And the alignment that Christ calls us into is a personal alignment because when he says, I want you to be aligned with me, he's basically extending his hand and saying, I want you to step with me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to be right with me, beside me, right behind me. This is a personal relationship into which I'm calling you. And so I want you to align with me because I'm not going to align with you because I'm the king and you're not. But that doesn't mean that I don't care about you. Actually, the reason I'm calling you into alignment with me is because I love you and I want you to have a fruitful life. Here's how the risen Christ puts it over in the book of Revelation. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Now, everybody here can't be earnest, but you can repent. Okay, be earnest and repent. So when he calls us to repent, to align with him, it's because he loves us. He wants a relationship with us. He wants us to be in a right relationship with him. Without repentance, there's no salvation. The Bible says he wants us to have this this healing, but the healing only comes in his presence. And so he calls us to align. He calls us to repent because he loves us and because he wants us to have fruitful lives. He wants us to know joy and life. Look at what the scripture says. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, the Bible says. It's, it's all about the fruitfulness. A lot of times when we talk about repentance, unfortunately, I kind of feel like we have a negative impression. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know what is always in people's minds when they think about repentance in church. And maybe it's the pulpit pounding and the screaming or something. I don't know what, what is always in people's minds. But I think sometimes we look at repentance as sort of negative. But the reason we think of repentance negatively is because our focus sometimes is more on what we're giving up as opposed to what... We are gaining it, it. Sometimes it's a little bit more along the lines of what I am letting go of as opposed to what I'm embracing. And, and so let's just think about this for a second. The king has come to you and to me and he's saying, repent, align your life with me. Why? Because he wants a personal relationship. Who is this king who's calling us to align with him? Oh, he just so happens to be your creator, so he's perfectly wise because he's the one through whom all things have been made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He's perfectly wise. Oh, and he's also perfectly loving because 
Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for you and me. He died for the ungodly. So here's your king who's died for you, who loves you perfectly, who's perfectly wise, who knows you better than you know yourself. If the king is calling you to align yourself with him, why do you think that is? Maybe because he wants you to have even more life. Maybe because he wants you and me to know the joy and the life of fruitfulness and purpose that come in relationship with him. This is a great thing. So when the king personally comes to you, who knows you and loves you better than you know and love yourself, and he says, align with me, that's fantastic, isn't it? When Jesus says repent, we should say, "Woo! yes, thank you very much. That's why we're talking about these core values, because they're opportunities for us to align with him. And there's this exercise that we go through all the time. And it's not just that we do this together corporately as a church on Sunday mornings, although every time we come together, whether you recognize it or not, there is implicitly a call to repentance because we see who he is. We see where we are and we see that we need to move. He doesn't need to move. We need to move. And that's a good thing that he invites us to move to where he is, that we would be like him because that's his agenda. And he's going to make sure that this agenda is fulfilled because he who began a good work in you will carry it out to the day of completion, the day of Christ Jesus. There's this promise. There's this assurance. It's going to happen. We're going to become like Jesus. Isn't that great? When you see Jesus, you see your future. When you see Jesus, you see where it is that God's wanting to take you. Isn't that wonderful? Everybody who loves repentance say, yay. All right. Woo. See, you know that. Yeah, you didn't think you'd be clapping about repentance. Okay. So, but that's good. You've just repented. You've come into alignment with what repentance is. That's, we just did this. This is very life affirming. So when we look at these core values, there's implicitly this call to change, to, to come into alignment. And one of our core values is that people matter. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how people matter to God. I'm going to take us to this one occasion where God sees. And God sees this person that other people aren't seeing. Sees this person that others would have disregarded or considered to be essentially worthless or of no value or just a tool. And this wonderful story comes to us over in Genesis chapter 16. If you've got your Bibles, you may want to open them up to that passage. The words are going to be on the screen but you may want to turn in your own translation, which is perfectly fine. But let me set up the story. Here's the backstory to Genesis 16. As some of you may know, God comes to this man named Abram, and he says, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's going to be fantastic. So he makes this promise to Abram, and 10 years later, Abram still doesn't have a child. He's 85, and he doesn't have a kid, and his wife is, is Sarai, and she doesn't have a child. They, they're, they're childless. Ten years. And Abram's starting to wonder, is this going to come to pass? So Sarai takes matters into her own hands, and she makes a suggestion that seems very weird, and it's a suggestion some of us would go, that's kind of messed up. But Abram takes the suggestion seriously, and here's the suggestion. She says, I I would suggest that you sleep with my handmaid, this Egyptian handmaid named Hagar, And she can become pregnant and be like a surrogate mother, and that way she can give us a child. Now, that's one of those suggestions that most of us would say, I don't think that that's really a good suggestion. But there, it was kind of a common practice in the ancient world. In fact, it was common enough that there was this sort of legal system that was built around uh, this whole activity, parameters and expectations and all the rest. It was 
not just culturally accepted, but culturally accepted to the point that it was legally supported. And the idea was that if Sarai's handmaid Hagar would get Hagar Hagar would get pregnant, then the child that she bore and and, and uh, would you know bring into the world would actually, for all intents and purposes, not legally be hers. Now, from a certain standpoint, of course, she's the mother biologically, but the mom and the dad would have been Abram and Sarai. That's how it was. And so, she, you know, Hagar was just a, a tool. She was just, you know, a, a vessel. She was, her, her value was in her utility to Abram and Sarai. And you think, well, that's kind of, kind of weird and, and and gross and some of you might even be saying and this is exactly why I don't believe the Bible because it's filled with arcane practices and things that are just kind of weird and uh, you know how in the world could God's people do things like this and I just reject the Bible because it just seems like a bunch of cultural nonsense if that's you, let me just explain something to you that you may not have thought of before. And that is, in the Old Testament, especially when you're dealing with narratives, there are two types of narratives or two types of passages. There's the descriptive passage and the prescriptive passage. A descriptive passage just describes what has happened without endorsing it. Prescriptive passages are the kind of passages that actually endorse or propose an activity as honoring to God. There's a difference between just describing what happened and God saying, this is what I'm prescribing for you and I'm good with this and this is how it needs to be. You say, well, how do you, how do you know if it's just descriptive or prescriptive? Well, a prescriptive passage, a lot of times, it'll just say that God's endorsing it or your God told them to do this. But here we know that actually what's being practiced is being condemned. And you say, well, how do you know that? God is actually prescribing the opposite of what happens. You say, well, how do you know this? Whenever you read a passage and you see the result of the story is brokenness and dysfunction and death. That is the narrative condemning the practice. And what happens as a result of this path that Abram and Sarai go down is that there's brokenness between Abram and Sarai. There's brokenness between Sarai and Hagar. There's brokenness between Abram and and his son, Ishmael, there's all kinds of brokenness that results from all of this because Abram does not consult God. So if you're looking at the text and you go, well, that, I, this is why I don't really like Genesis and the Old Testament and all the rest. I just reject it as somehow coming from God because it's got all these weird things in it. You're not reading carefully enough because if you're reading carefully enough, you're seeing that actually these practices are being condemned. That somehow, some author, and it's not Abram because Abram's going along with this, somehow, whoever wrote this text, whoever wrote the Bible, is transcending culture, standing outside of culture, and condemning the practices of culture. Now, who could possibly stand outside of culture so as to correct it? I, I, I don't know. Maybe God? It's just another evidence, actually. When you start looking at the Bible carefully, you see, actually... What the Bible is doing is centuries, in some cases millennia ahead of other cultures, is condemning the practices. Even the practices that are being adhered to by the patriarchs. It's got the marks of inspiration on it. But I digress. You follow this? I hope that makes sense to you. So please don't let this story turn you off. If it turns you off, just recognize it turned God off centuries before it turned anyone else off. So here's the story. 
Genesis chapter 16, starting with verse 1. Let's go ahead and stand together out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. You see, Sarai is going to build her family through her maidservant because her maidservant is just a tool. But Sarai and Abram, uh, by law, by custom, they are going to essentially be the parents. Uh, Hagar is just a tool. She's the means to an end, but she's not an end in and of herself. And I love the simplicity of the next sentence. Abram agreed to do what Sarai said. Okay, honey, you tell me to sleep with this young childbearing age Egyptian handmaid. Well, okay, I'll do it. But I want you to notice, Abram does not ask the Lord for permission. You know why he doesn't consult the Lord? Well, two reasons. One, our flesh has a tendency of twisting our perspective on what's right and wrong and truth, right? You know this. There's a second thing. When the culture around says, hey, this is fine, we tend to run with that. So if you kind of think every once in a while people just go, well, it feels good to do it, and everybody else is fine with it, and the whole culture is fine with it, why would I even question this sexual familial practice? If you think that that's a new thing here in the 21st century, I just want you to know that that goes all the way back to Abram at the very least. Just because it feels good, just because everybody else is doing it, just because the whole culture is okay with it, doesn't mean you shouldn't consult God. Abraham makes that mistake, and uh, he later pays the price. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. Well, now, wait a second. Time out. Didn't, wasn't this Sarai's idea? You, you ever know anybody that suggests something, then you do that weird something, and then they blame you for executing their plan, and they're upset with you about it? Actually, if you translate the Hebrew word Sarai into the English, it translates Antonio Brown. But I, I digress. Uh, I put my servant in your arms. I, that, was, that was a joke. That, that, that wasn't really serious, okay? Uh, I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Translation, my wife's nuts. I'm staying out of this. Uh, she's the first wife, the other second wife. I'm letting first wife take care of second wife. And she, okay, fine, whatever you want to do. And so Abram is passive because he's afraid of his high maintenance, crazy wife. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. So she fled from her. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now we're going to continue on with the story in just a second, but you've been standing long enough. And so you, you understand what's going on here, right? You, you've got Abram, who's a little bit confused, why is this taking so long? I'm not so sure that God's going to fulfill his promise and all the rest. And then you've got uh, Sarai, and she's, maybe she's wanting to help her husband. Maybe she's tired of hearing him complain about how she's not giving him a child. I mean, have you ever thought about that? I mean, this has been 10 years, and she hasn't performed, and is, it isn't working. And so she's got to be sharing her husband's frustration, too. And so she just looks around at the culture around her says, here's a way we can do it. Maybe this is the plan. 
why don't you take my handmaid? And as soon as the handmaid gets pregnant and begins to show and grow and grow, well, Sarai's not very happy about it. She's probably jealous. Maybe Hagar is rubbing Sarai's face in it. We don't know. Maybe, maybe that's happening. But it's getting really messy. And Abram just wants to kind of back off and not mess with all of this because he's passive. He's not leading his wife. He's not standing up for his unborn son or any of this. He's just, you know, letting things, you know, play out. But he has to be a little bit confused about God's plan and how the plan's going to come to pass. Let's continue on with verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. The angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. And the name in the Hebrew is El Roy. You are the God who sees. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. You know, when Hagar fled from Sarai, she had to have been feeling not just frustrated, but empty. Who, who survives being used like Hagar? Even her child, even the life growing within her, at least legally, wasn't actually hers. Did, was she asked permission to do this? I doubt it. She's the servant. Did Abram love her? I doubt it. She's just the servant. They didn't connect. There was a physical thing and that was that. And my wife can do with you whatever she sees fit because you're nothing to me. You're hers. You're her property. So here's Sarai in the middle, I mean, Hagar in the middle of the desert. She's exhausted. She's pregnant. She's hurting. She's feeling empty except for this child that is growing in her womb. And she's thinking to herself, how do I provide for this child? Especially when I'm as empty as I am. And you know what happens when you're abused or mistreated. We don't know how she was mistreated. Verbally, physically, both. I don't know, but she was mistreated severely enough where she was willing to run out into the middle of a desert. How bad could it have been? Probably pretty bad if that was her response to run out into the middle of nowhere. You ever been abused or beaten or mistreated and and you kind of knew other people were watching, but nobody did that? Gene and I watched the story of the Menendez brothers. You remember that years and years ago? They claimed that they were sexually abused. We, we don't know. Even the people close to the case, they didn't know. But the claim was, well, mom knew. And I don't know what that's like to have a parent who knows the other parent is abusing, but we don't know if that happened in the Menendez case, but we know that that happens. And so here's 
my, I guess, short-time lover, here's the one I'm living under his roof, and he doesn't care that I'm being beaten or mistreated. In fact, he knows what's going on, and, and he's okay with it. Do with her what you will. And she runs out into the middle of the desert, empty, a nothing in her mind to the people she just ran from. Nothing but a tool, nothing but a means to an end, not really a person. And she probably had heard about Abram's God at the very least. She probably didn't know that much. But she probably wondered, does does this God know where I am? Does he know what's going on in my life? Does this God care? Does this God see what is happening? Has this God taken any notice whatsoever? She's alone. She's probably hungry, thirsty, exhausted, afraid, and empty. Then in verse 7, the angel of the Lord comes to her. And this is very interesting to me, that the angel of the Lord would come to her in the middle of nowhere. Why? Because El Roy, the God who sees, saw exactly where she was. He didn't go looking around. He came right to where she was. Oh, and the angel of the Lord also knows about her. He knows her name. He knows actually the name of her unborn child. He knows the gender of the child that is yet to be born. And he knows her future. He knows the future of the child. He knows what's coming next. This angel of the Lord knows all about her. And the angel of the Lord says, the, the Lord hears. The Lord has heard of your misery. The Lord has not missed a thing. Now, I don't know how we can possibly capture how revolutionary this exchange between this woman and God or the angel of the Lord actually was in this moment. Likely, Hagar had the same attitude or disposition toward God that other people in her culture had. She had this vision or this understanding of God that he was mighty, to be sure, but probably unengaged, aware, but maybe aware, but distant. He had certainly other things to do than pay attention to her. Because she wasn't the one that God had made a promise to, to be the father of a great nation and the father of children as numerous as the stars in the sky. She was just a, a handmaid. She's just a single girl who was the, the maid to, the, to her mistress. She was simply the one who was at the disposal of other people's agenda and dreams. Why would God pay any attention to her? I read a book years ago, A Child Called It. Does that ring a bell to anybody here? The child grew up abused and neglected and all of the other things. And it's just amazing how the light would eventually come on, that there is a God who cares and a God who sees. But when you are being abused or beaten or neglected or used as a means to end, you do have a tendency to think, if there is a God, and maybe there is a God out there, surely, surely, surely this God doesn't care about me, isn't seeing anything that is going on in my life. That's Hagar. And so when she gives God this name, Elroy, the God who sees, it's like she's shouting out to everybody else in her culture and probably to us here 2,000, 3,000 years later, she's shouting out to us, God is not like you've conceived him to be. I understand if you think that God is distant or tied up with global concerns, but you need to understand that God is attentive to you. 
God has not allowed anything to escape his attention. There's not a single thing that has happened of which God is unaware. God sees. Now, theologians have come along and they've taken this name, Elroy, the God who sees, and this concept that God sees. They've taken it and they've put this wonderful little label to it. It's a theological term, omniscience. You've probably heard this, omni, all, science, science, knowledge. God knows all things. God has perfect knowledge of all things. And this is true. Uh, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 10. He says that God has every hair on your head numbered. And for some of us, it's not quite as big a challenge as it is for other people. But God still has every hair on your head numbered. He knows everything. He's got categorically perfect knowledge of astronomy and physiology and physics and chemistry and biology and psychology and sociology. He knows everything about everything. The most boring show to God on TV is Jeopardy. So if you don't if you don't like Jeopardy, you're like God. Okay, just so you know. But um, omniscience. Now that's kind of like a thing that we play with, and we think that's a really cool thing to think that God knows everything about everything. But but we've sort of sucked the blood and the life out of it. For Hagar, the idea that God sees is anything but lifeless and bloodless. It's radically life changing. And so in the time that remains, I just want us to think about the God who sees and how God sees you and how God sees me, because the way he sees you and the way he sees me is the way he sees everyone else around him. And when we understand that people matter to God the way that people actually do matter to God, then people begin to matter to us the way that they should. Because, again, our alignment, it always starts with understanding God and where God is and giving us the opportunity to move while God himself is unmoved. So let's just think about how much people matter to God as we think about the God who sees. Four things I want you to understand here. When we stand before the God who sees, number one, we should be encouraged. We should be encouraged because God knows about our secret works. You ever have a week where you just go, why is this important? Why am I doing this? Does this matter? Does anybody care? And the reality is, no, it matters to God. God sees. He's paying attention. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about prayer and he's talking about good works and he's saying, do it in secret. Pray in secret, do good works in secret. Why? So that your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's nothing that you ever do, there's no prayer you've ever offered that God didn't hear. There's no work that God did not notice. And as a result of God seeing, there's a reward. For he is a, he rewards the, the prayer. He rewards the good work. That's done in secret. There's a reward that's attached. Now, I was thinking, how do I apply that? Well, here's one of the things I think this is really simple, but it's something that I, I really believe is true. If God sees what's done in secret and his heart is to reward. Well, when we see other people doing things in secret, we reward too. at the very least, we reward with encouragement. I was thinking about that in connection with the 30th anniversary of our church that's coming up in four weeks. We're going to be in here at 9.30, the first Sunday of October, it's October 6th, we're going to have breakfast and tables are going to be set up and we're going to remember and celebrate and hear from some of our, you know, founding uh, fathers, uh, you know, of the church and all the rest. It'll be, it'll be good. And some of you think, well, why should I care about that? Well, here's why. Because 30 years ago, some people that maybe you didn't even know at the time and maybe you haven't met yet, they sacrificed in ways that we don't understand so as to make sure that there was a church right here in this location, not just in this location, but, but living out a unique identity. And I know from starting a church, sometimes 
things don't go really well at the beginning and things might start in a weird way. But the reality is when there's the beginning of a church, there's a lot of sacrifice and there's a lot of prayer and there's a lot of work that goes into it. And you say, well, I wasn't even here. Why should I care? Well, here's why you should care. Uh, because these people are a part of your family. It's, it's, really, it's really not that complicated. Because we appreciate what other people did in secret that we benefit from. Around here, I see people coming in and out all the time. And I am so appreciative of, of people for the work that they do in the building, that the work that happens on Saturday morning that nobody else notices. When I see Donnie coming up, up here throughout the week and doing things for the homeless. And some of you, you notice things that are happening in your Sunday school. You notice your teacher showed up and they have really put some effort in. Or you notice a deacon that's done something or a minister that's done something. You know, it's, it's entirely appropriate to say thanks. Because God rewards us when he sees what we do in secret. We should be doing the same thing. It's, it's a good thing to be an encouragement to one another. There's a second thing that I think is really important here. When I stand before the God who sees all things, I also recognize that I can take comfort because he knows my wounds. He hears our misery. With regards to Hagar, she doesn't even cry out to God in particular, but she cries. She's miserable. And God still notices all the misery, even if it's not brought to him in prayer, because he just notices the misery that happens to people. There's not a single tear that's ever been shed that God has been unaware. I love this passage. This is over in the Old Testament. I'll read this to you. Psalm chapter 56, verse 8. You, that is the Lord, number my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. God knows every wound, every struggle with which you've ever had to deal. God knows every betrayal. He knows every disappointment. He knows everything that you've been through that has been hurtful. And God cares so much that he didn't just notice the tears falling to the ground. He collected them. Because God sees. Because God relates to you and to me even better than I relate to a horned toad. Because you're not a horned toad to God. You're precious in his sight. That everything matters to him. Now there's a challenge in this. There's a third thing here and that is. When I stand before the God who sees everything, well, here's the thing. I'm also challenged because I recognize that God sees me on those occasions if I ever bring wounds to someone else. God wasn't just seeing Hagar in her woundedness. He was also seeing Sarai in what she did to wound Hagar. God notices these things. I love these passages out of the Old Testament. This is Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You say, well, that's kind of heavy. God's watching. Well, yeah, it is kind of heavy and God is watching. But it's kind of important to know that while he notices people being wounded, he also notices those of us who do the wounding and we'll have to give an account for that. Now, how does that apply? I was just thinking, how does that apply when I notice certain things or see certain things that maybe other people don't see? Well, here's how that applies. I think when you see people that are out of line, you call them on their stuff. For example, when I go to youth camp in the summers, which is always great, kids have a tendency to cut in line. And Mark can confirm this. When I see kids cutting, here's what I do. Cutter! Say, well, that just doesn't seem very nice. I'm trying to reveal God to them, okay? 
we notice. Now, I'm kind of kidding a little bit about that, but, you know, hey, we need to kind of correct. And it doesn't need to always be me, but, you know, we need to let people know. We see that. Somebody cuts me off in traffic, not for me, but for God. I honk, right? You know, I mean, they got to know. We saw that. Now, I'm kind of kidding, but here's, here's where it gets a little bit more serious. You notice things that are not right. You notice a kid that is not being treated appropriately or you notice some, you know, maybe somebody is, I don't know, being unduly put upon in some public place. You need to step up. People need to be called on their stuff. I love this story from Brad Farr. This is years ago, and I I hope I'm getting this right. He told me he noticed a guy that was in a wheelchair and these uh, college students were kind of giving him a hard time. and, And Brad let them know, I'm seeing this. People need to know. I saw that. You can't do that. And you can be nice about it, like the other day. Mark called me on something. I I, I hate to be so public about this because it looks bad on you for calling me out. But here, here's the thing. I was, I was, uh, I was on Shell Road and I got pulled over by a cop. Yeah, I know! Judge! Judging me. Okay, yeah. I got pulled over and, and, and so, he sees me. I didn't see him. He saw, he saw me. I didn't see him. And so I'm, I'm there pulled over and he calls because he's with the far kids. And he said, Hey, I just wanted to know, Hey, why did you get pulled over? <laughs> you know, about as nice as he could, he asked. Now, just so you know, I wasn't speeding because I always drive 10 miles under the speed limit. Okay. But I actually, my license was missing from the front. Just got a warning. Uh, but you know what? We need to help one another. And one of the ways that we help one another is saying, I, I see that. Accountability. I was just, I was just counseling a couple a little bit earlier about how, you know, I have, we have a good time or we do things really easily when it comes to reading the Bible together, but we're not doing it so well separate. And so it's like, well, you know, we need to hold one another accountable to do that. That's right. There's nothing wrong with accountability. There's nothing wrong with watching one another. But the way that we watch one another ultimately is through a lens of love. And that's how God looks at you and at me. This is the fourth thing. In light of the God who sees, here's the reality. In light of the God who sees, I'm humbled. Because even though God sees, it just gets me. Even though God sees everything about me, he still wants to have something to do with me. Even though God sees our shortcomings, he's still on our side nonetheless. He's still with us or pulling for us. One of the most wonderful, humbling stories you're ever going to come across is at the Last Supper. Peter's there and Jesus says, you're going to betray me. This is what's going to happen. And here's here's how it's put over in Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, of course, Peter denies that he's going to... Deny Jesus. He's just not buying it. But Jesus knows what's coming. And Jesus is still praying for Simon. He's still actually comforting Simon, even though he knows what's coming for him. And he's telling Simon Peter, you're going to turn back. And when you turn back, I'm all for it because that's my plan too. And I'm just thinking, Jesus, you know everything about Peter. You know what's in his heart. You know he's denying what you're telling him. You know that he doesn't see himself like you see him. And you know what's coming. And you know how bad this is going to be. And you're still praying for him. You're still interceding for him. You still have a plan to exalt him in service to you. That's called knowledge through a lens of love. 
think about the story that we've just been thinking through in Genesis 16. Poor Hagar. We feel for her because she is legitimately a victim. Then we look at Sarai. Nobody likes her in this story. She's the abuser. She's the one who's taking things into her own hands. And she's the one who's getting mad at everybody else for her own actions. You know, God surely doesn't want to have anything to do with her. But even though God sees everything about her, here's the reality. God still works through Sarai. You know how that, that happens? Sarai becomes the father or the, the mother, the mother of Isaac. Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac is the one through whom the Messiah comes. Now, if I'm God, I might be thinking, you know, I'm kind of done with you. We're going we're gonna to operate through Hagar. But that's not what God does. Because he doesn't relate to us and he doesn't use us on the basis of our performance. He relates to us and he uses us on the basis of his incredible, amazing grace. He sees, but he sees perfectly through a lens of love that is thoroughly merciful, utterly forgiving, and absolutely redemptive. When uh, I was younger, I sang a song like many of you sang. It went something like, be careful little lies what you see. Okay, this is my, my audition, John. Pay attention. Be careful little lies what you see. For the Father up above is looking down with judgment. Oh, no, you, you, no. Y'all know the song? For the Father up above is looking down with love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's not just that God has perfect knowledge. It's that he has perfect knowledge perfectly. It's that he sees you like a parent sees their kid, and they know the deficiencies, but there's still the love and there's still the embrace. And so when the correction comes, that's not rejection. It's just a correction that comes because the Father loves Because the Father's pulling you closer and closer to where it is that he would have you to be in alignment with him. That you would know his love and you'd know the joy of a fruitful life. I, I pray that how the Father sees you through this perfect lens of love, you would see other people. That even when you do notice the deficiencies and they're there, that there would still be this incredible grace and this incredible mercy and this incredible trust and this incredible Hope for the promises of God that though someone has fallen short, God's not done with them yet, that God's moving them to a place of incredible purpose and effectiveness. And the good news in all this, too, is that's not just how God sees you. That's how God sees other people, because God sees you not because you've performed well, but because he's just gracious. And if God relates you to you entirely on grace, well, that's how God relates to other people. And I pray that in the way that we see other people, we would not just be revealing God in what we communicate, but we would somehow be revealing God in the way that we look at people. In the way that we would see with eyes from above that are kind of looking down with love. That we would not just be careful about what we see, but that we would be really, really careful about how we see and that we would never avert our eyes away from the difficulties and the, and the pain and the suffering. Because to look and to see is to care 
and to involve yourself in the life of other people. It's not just that God sees some things or sees some things appropriately. It's not just, it's not just that. It's that he looks and looks intently into the misery of other people and to the shortcomings, not so as to condemn, but to restore. So as often as you have opportunity and as often as I have opportunity, we need to open our eyes and see. Because people matter. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we uh, thank you so much for loving us the way that you do, for seeing us and then not just mowing right over the surface of things because you've got some plan and you're all tied up in global affairs as if we don't matter. I don't know how all this works, but somehow as you hold the whole world in your hands, in a very real sense, each and every one of us in this room, each and every one of us in this world, we are the world to you. We do not deserve to be looked upon as you look upon us, but you do look upon us the way you do because you're love. Give us eyes like you have that people would matter to us like they matter to you. And may you grant us the gift of repentance that we would become more and more like you that we would know the love that you have for us and that we would know the joy and the life that you, the author of life and the lover of our souls, have for us and want to bring through us. May others matter to us as we matter to you. This is our prayer. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.